I'm Dave Quahogowitz. Did you ever wonder how different your life would be if you just did that one thing, other than the one thing you're doing now? Ask yourself that question, sit back, relax, and welcome to The Million Dollar Painting. Did I tell you who Dave is? You did not tell us who Dave is. So when I started doing the animations, because they take place in a radio studio, I started calling people up who were my favorite broadcasters. And one of the people calling up, I sent Dave Davies an email that showed, this, it showed pictures from the book, Daniel Doodle, and sent him a version of the script, which is actually pretty brief. It's about a page of type. And he wrote me back that day and said, I'd like to help you with this project. I'd like to see this project get made. The first voice you hear, actually, it's the second voice you hear, is of Dave Davies from Fresh Air, a significant part of a show that has a huge audience. So who are you? I'm Danielle Majeski, and I am a native Long Islander who moved 150 miles away from home to work with this guy. And who's this guy? My name is Victor Staben. I'm a native New Yorker. I moved to Jim Thorpe, PA, about 20 years ago. Accidentally, I bought a 16,000 square foot building. And what I mean by that was, I moved to Jim Thorpe thinking, I don't know if I'm gonna live here, but I need to work. Every day I need to wake up and work. So I was here, I thought it was temporary, I was renting a studio in a building that was an old factory. And my landlord was a creep. And then all of a sudden, the building came up for sale. And I had no plans of moving immediately. I thought, oh, if I get another landlord, chances are he's going to want to kick me out. But I really liked the studio I was working in. And the building was $150,000. And I'm from New York City. And $150,000 <laughs> for 16,000 square feet. Unheard of. <laughs> it's, it's just a mind freeze. And I uh, actually got the building for like 124 and never left. And I think that ties into what the quote is in the beginning of the podcast too. Like how different would your life be if you just did that one thing other than what you were doing? And I think it's interesting that you ended up 100, how many miles away is New York City from here? 80? Or 90? No, no. My, my house in Queens at the time was uh, 126 miles away. And I lived in Manhattan for 48 years. I lived in New York for 48 years, Brooklyn, Queens, and Manhattan. And I thought that when I moved out of the city and went rural, I'd have a choice of like any part of the Northeast. That's what I was thinking. But when I got the building, that was it. That was it for you. Yeah. Okay, so before you ended up in Jim Thorpe anyway, oh, the question, this... wait a second. The question had to do with what's the one thing you would be doing if you didn't do that one thing you were doing now? Or some version of that question. And I often think that if I didn't have the building, I would have spent a lot of my energy doing X. And what could the X have been? The X would have been more artwork, more marketing of artwork, uh, or we don't want to use the word marketing because it's so unattractive, but getting my artwork out yeah. into the world. And what I wound up doing was creating a destination which brings the world to the artwork. And that was not my plan. 
to fix up a 16,000 square foot building <laughs> so people would come see my artwork. Yeah. But people often have to remind me that what I did was turn this piece of building into an art installation. Which is exactly what you did. And your studio's here, but just to give people a little bit of background, you you were living in New York City. You were an illustrator before you decided to move to Jim Thorpe, and then there was kind of a turning point in that timeline that you decided to stop doing illustrations. Are you getting at something? Yeah, I am getting at something. Okay, are you getting at what was the turning point? Well, both. You were an illustrator. Some of the what are some of the things that you did as an illustrator that people would know you from? Oh, how would people know me? Well, yes. illustrators when they're interviewed. If they got to do postage stamps, that's the first thing they say they did. That's the big old boy. And all of our millennial listeners are going to be like, what What's is a, a postage, postage stamp? stamp? <laughs> yeah, so I did nine stamps for the post office. The first postage <laughs> stamp was for Henry Mancini. When they had the opening of the stamp, they celebrated the making of the stamp in Hollywood. John Glenn was the MC. They had the biggest celebration for the making of a stamp in the history of the post office. It just happened to be my stamp. It wasn't because of the artwork. It was because Henry Mancini's wife was connected to everybody. And that night, Julie Andrews oh, queen. was part of the celebration. John Glenn was there. Stevie Wonder played harmonica in front of my stamp. Stevie Wonder loved my stamp. Oh, did he? Yes, he did, yeah. <laughs> Uh, That's effed up. John right Williams, who orchestrated I all know. of Star, Star Wars, he and worked Harry with Mancini, Potter. so he was playing piano in front of my stamp. And wow. the craziest thing is, I don't have a picture of that. I could kick myself. <laughs> the world before the, the world age before of... cell phones. Yeah. And you pop, you know, pictures on yourself. You know what I'm saying? Hey, if I could... One, try again, try again. Well, if I could articulate the thoughts in my head, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. So anyway, uh, I did that. I did numerous uh, articles for the New York Times, Rolling Stone magazine. I worked for Time magazine. I did lots of covers for Newsweek magazine. I did a lot of advertising work. I did a job for the Cunard line. I got to take all my friends on a cruise. It was kind of I wish I was your friend back then. Yeah, it would have been good that day. And uh, what else? And, I'm not supposed uh, to say, and, uh, I'm sorry, but I am really thinking here, what's a good thing to throw in? Uh, the Kiss cover. Oh, I forgot. <laughs> I did an album cover for Kiss. He just forgets that he does an album, he, that he did an album you. cover for Kiss. I did a Kiss. number of album covers for RCA jazz artists, but the big album cover I did was for Kiss. I did it 42 years ago, wow. and I'm constantly reminded of it every day day that I'm alive. <laughs> you will never that I forget did an it. Album cover for Kiss. I think five artists did album covers for Kiss and only two of us are alive. Right? So all the Kiss people come for you every day. <laughs> I get a lot of attention from it. It's odd. I knew that I was being plugged into the culture when I was 26 years old and yeah. I did it, but I just had no clue that it would drag on. <laughs> dragged right into the future. It will drag on till you're dead, yeah, Victor. Yeah. You did well, a you know, cover. The, the thing is, when I die, if there's an obit, the first thing they're going to say is, I did kiss a kiss. unmasked artist. Yeah, and <laughs> I'm not so impressed with the artwork. I think the artwork's pretty terrific, but it doesn't take a shine to the stuff I'm doing for myself. It is very true. And that leads into what made you decide to stop being an illustrator or a commissioned okay. illustrator and decide to do what you wanted to well, do. Well, 
I did it for 25 years. It started to get old. Instead of loving the work, I loved the process of doing great work, but I didn't love the work itself. And you're always given somebody else's ideas. Being an illustrator is like being a fireman. Fireman, here's a bell, boom. I should have a bell right now. I'm just <laughs> snapping my fingers. But a fireman hears a bell, slides down a pole, gets in a truck, goes to the emergency. An illustrator gets a phone call, responds to the phone call, gets to basically polish somebody else's apples. You're used as hands, sometimes you're used conceptually, but people want your style of painting or drawing to make their product sell. And I got tired of selling other people's products because I have too many of my own ideas. So that was sticking with me for a bunch of years before I stopped illustrating. And while in between jobs, while I was an illustrator, I would always be doing my own work. Yeah. What happened? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I went to the doctor's office and I was having a difficulty, I was having difficulty breathing. My lungs were filling up with fluid and I just couldn't shake it. And I was told that I had a tumor over my heart the size of an orange. And they put me in the hospital immediately. And within a couple of days, they said to me, you are going to die tomorrow unless we give you CHOP. And CHOP is an anagram for a certain kind of chemo that would kill my tumor. They just didn't have enough time to figure out what the tumor was. They just looked at me and they said, you're suffocating and you're suffocating now. Wow. So they gave me this, this syringe. It was like a hundred cc's that they pumped into my arm. It looked like Tang. It was bright orange. They said to me, do you want to do this? Because we are, we're giving you this, but if your cancer come back, comes back and you have a certain type of cancer, it's going to kill you within two weeks, but we got to give you this to keep you alive tonight. And it may not be the right thing to give you. It could help the cancer if it comes back. So I said, yeah, 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 plug me in. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like how do you even decide that? There's no decision to be made, but this is the label. This is the way things get labeled. So the next day they gave, they gave me the chop, then they give you a bunch of steroids. The next day I was dancing in the hallways. It was just, I went from not being able to walk six feet to the bathroom because I was exhausted because I had no oxygen in me to dancing within a day. So it was just a progressive, like you just were having trouble breathing and then it just got worse? I had a cancer that could kill you in two weeks. Yeah. Bam! Dead! Ooh. And so I made a decision that I didn't want to go back to illustration. I didn't know how long I was going to live. I think about this every day. If somebody gave me a death sentence and they said it's two weeks, I know exactly what I would do. I would paint like a, and just knock out as much work as I could do with whatever time I was given, whether it was two weeks, two months, or two years, I'd sit at the easel. Wow. So. And I think that's the scariest thing that can happen to anybody. It's one of my biggest fears is getting that, like one day everything's fine and then the next day you have a very small chance the of... The scariest day I had was when I was getting chemo, my liver was getting marbleized, and I had to go get a scan. And after I got out of the MRI machine, the technician said, hey, you've got liver cancer. And liver cancer is basically a death sentence. And then I spoke to my oncologist. He goes, he said, 
You know, I'd be really mystified if you had liver cancer. I love that word, mystified. That's the word he used. And it turned out that my liver was not cancer. It was getting marbleized with fatty tissue because of the chemo. And they just, they stopped giving me chemo for a couple of weeks so my liver could live. The thing about chemo is it can kill you on the way. On the to way to helping. You. Yeah, yeah. yeah so. so I had this traumatic year. It was, I got chemo for two years, but the first year was like, like a roller coaster without a seatbelt. Wow. Yeah. What a metaphor. He was just hanging on. Yeah, just yeah. not even knowing. Woo. And it was 20 years ago. And I thought, of the, I thought of the whole situation as my job. I didn't look at it like I was going to die. I was looking at it like, this is my job. I do my job. And wow. I started the turtle series while I was sick. And I worked as much as I could. Sometimes I would lose control of my hands. It was creepy. I couldn't hold a pencil or a pen or a brush. I've never heard that story so in depth before, so I'm kind of just like. Oh, that's that's, oh. that's the easy parts. Yeah. I covered all the all the mirrors in my house. You, you go into a chemo ward the first time, and you see these people who've been knocked back so far they look like human scabs with legs, and you think that's not going to happen to me. And then four months later, I'm covering the mirrors in my house because I don't want to look at my face. Wow. But I got to read the paper. I covered the mirrors with newspaper. <laughs> and here he is 20 years later. <laughs> still funny as hell. Still funny, still kicking, and yeah. still doing artwork. Damn. So that's that story. Wow. That's like, name all of my greatest fears in one, and it's everything you just said. But well, you the only to tell fear the I had was I really thought I was going to die, and there was no way out of it because of the liver cancer thing. But the other fear was... I think the fear that everybody might have is like, someday you're going to die. You just yeah. don't know what it is. Yep. And when I, had, when I had no, you know, terminal days because they were just trying to cure me, I was never really afraid. I was just kind of beleaguered. You're like, this kind of sucks right now. <laughs> it really sucked right now. Yeah, yeah. right and now. And it was so it long sucks. ago that it's an interesting question. I feel like I'm taking out a violin when I explain it. And I'm not looking for sympathy. It's just a component of how my life changed. And the strange thing is, I really needed that to happen. Yeah, to get in order to, to be where here. I am now. Goodness. I mean, but that's, and it's interesting because a lot of people say, I've unfortunately known a lot of people who have had cancer, gone through chemo. And there's one thing that all of the people, including you now, have in common is their mindset about it. Like you didn't have that. I mean, maybe you did deep down, but on the outside, you thought of it as your job, even how you just said it. And I feel like that's very admirable when you almost receive a death sentence. You're kind of like, all right, well, I'm just going to do it. And here we are. And you're here 20 years later. So I think it's, I don't know, I think that's... Maybe 22, 22 years later. But still. It's... I forget. It's definitely 21. And certain moments completely change the course of our lives forever. And everybody has those moments. And some are different than others. And then... In 2020, the entire world collectively went through something when the pandemic happened. And it was one of those things where you either, you take it for what it is and try to turn it into something positive, or you had a really bad experience with it. I know a lot of people who actually had a positive experience during lockdown and the pandemic, because I think it gave people a new perspective. That's how I ended up here. 
Because the pandemic completely changed everything for me personally. You know, I never really asked what was so pivotal in your life that you said, I want to get out of here and try something else. Not just the fact that you stumbled into what's been created here, but yeah. what was lacking? Well, so I grew up on Long Island, was born and raised. I lived in New York City on and off for three years, and I was just surrounded by the hustle lifestyle. And I put it in air quotes because anybody who lives in New York nowadays, I'm not necessarily talking about upstate, more Long Island, Brooklyn, Queens, Manhattan. You have to live the hustle lifestyle to survive. And I moved out of my childhood home for the first time permanently in 2020. You, you don't have the opportunities to just move out and survive and afford everything without having at least three jobs. You're always working. You don't really have a personal or a social life. And I was okay with that for a while. I was working three jobs before the pandemic hit. My whole life was work and I was just working in restaurants, at Starbucks, just doing all the things. And then the pandemic hit and I kind of realized, I thought to myself, I'm like, I'm, what am I doing? Before I know it, I'm going to be at a point in my life where I have to make a decision on where I want to go, what I want to do. Is this going to be good for my future? I, I want to be able to live comfortably and okay. And it doesn't give you the opportunity there unless you're making $200,000 a year, I think they said, was the average to be able to live comfortably in an apartment. Not even in to- In a small apartment. In a very small apartment. I mean, before I moved to Jim Thorpe, I was living in a house with five other people in a room that was a little bigger than the bathroom outside this door. And I was paying almost $1,000 a month. That's for a house that, was, nice. hasn't, that hasn't been updated since the 70s. And it was very pivotal for me to realize I can't, I can't be successful here. I can't be. I mean, all of my friends who graduated from Stony Brook University, NYU, all of these amazing colleges, entry-level positions, they're paying minimum wage. So it's like, even if I did continue and get my bachelor's degree, or I did do this, or I did do that, I still wouldn't be able to afford the lifestyle there. My friend went from making $25 an hour at Starbucks to using her degree making $16.75. It's like, what's the logic? Like, we're not set up to succeed. So it was... Well, the interesting thing that happened to me out here is, even though the building is very demanding, I have a tremendous, tremendous amount of space. Yeah. And I can't imagine what it would cost to fix this building up in New York City. <laughs> but the, the fact, okay, artists need old buildings. Mm. It's kind of almost as simple as that. And the more space you have, the more creative you could be. You could drag something in off the street, you could look at it. Months later, you could turn it into something. And that's kind of a vague example of like artists needing space, but you could do a bigger painting. Uh, you don't have to necessarily sell the painting the moment it's over. You could hang it on the wall and look at it. Yeah. And hence I have my own museum now. <laughs> and something funny happened one day. I was living in Manhattan on 15th and 6th. I had an apartment that was not big, but it was mine and it was cheap. Compared to today's standards, mm. I could afford it and very easily afford it. And my father walks in one day. He goes, I don't like your New York. What, what are you talking about? He goes, the New York I lived in was nicer than the New York that you're living in. 
I knew exactly what he was talking about. He was talking about more space at a cheaper price, less density, uh, quality of life issue. Yeah. And I look at what kids started going through after I was in Manhattan for 15 years. Instead of having your own apartment, where you get to really kind of like play with your own eccentricities and have your own personality, I was, I was still single. I was dating women who were in apartments with five other women, like five, five kids in one apartment. And I just thought, ick, right? So That's how it is my now. New York was changing as I was in it. And now it's just kind of a joke. There's no place to go that's dangerous and cheap. Dangerous and cheap was everybody's middle name. That's what made it great. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah, something could happen, but nothing really ever did. And it's, you know, if I think back, I never had a friend that was like, that was challenged by crime, but there was crime everywhere. I right. just, I loved it. I just loved it. And you could go out, you could get a drink, you could hang, and you didn't have to worry yeah. about going broke. And nowadays you go. You're, mean, you're, nowadays you're just broke. You're just broke, <laughs> right? You're just broke in general. But yet you go to New York City, and every restaurant is fully booked with reservations for the night. And there is a sense of magic to be said about New York City. And I have experienced it. I lived there for three years. I worked in fashion. I lived the New York City Sex in the City girl dream. But it's a lifestyle that will either make you or completely break you, chew you up, spit you out, and leave nothing left of you. And it's, you have, these days you have to make that decision. But artists can either spend money on their overhead. Yeah. Or they can make, and, and to do that, maybe you make art that you could sell quick because you make it fast. Right. And I'm an artist who doesn't want to make it fast. I want to make work that is contemplative, that takes a long time. And my favorite painting is by Salvador Dali. It took him two years to make. He did not worry about overhead. And I can't talk to like what he did as a young man. He happened to do that painting when he was 67 years old. Yeah. But that's the painting that I use as a watermark. And for me to do something that might take three months or four months, I can't worry about overhead. Yeah. I have to worry about the quality of the product that I'm making. And I have to be able to love it. And I can't love it if I'm plowing through it at some sort of ridiculous speed <laughs> because I have some bill to pay at the end of the month. Right. And you have that luxury here because... I am blessed. Yeah. I mean, this building is incredible. <laughs> I don't want to say there aren't things that annoy the hell out of me. But for the most part, I'm blessed. Well, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. there's always things that will bother you and annoy you and come with. What does Grandma Ida say? What does Grandma Ida say? Grandma Ida said, you have to take the good with the bad. And that's the best, best advice I could give to anybody. Yeah. And, yeah. It's, and you have the opportunity to have the good and the bad. Like back, back at home, people don't have the time. I mean, if you sit down with somebody. I mean, opportunity to have the good and the bad as opposed to just having the bad. Just having the bad. <laughs> right. Just have, because you don't have time to think hey, about. Hey, how's it going? Oh, everything's bad. It is so fun. <laughs> like, okay, so you met my sister the other day. She's a, an amazing little ball of stress. And if you meet anybody, if, if people come here from Long Island and you talk to them, or if they come from New York, they're going to have this tenseness about them. Everybody's just stressed and tense. And it's like, here, 
everything is slow moving and everybody's just, it's kind of, it was kind of a culture shock when I moved here because it's just so different and it's almost like a tunnel. You don't think that there's anything else out there. And then you come to a place like this and you're like, oh, so life doesn't have to be full of stress, anxiety, and four jobs to pay your rent on time. <laughs> I don't even know how to respond to that. I've yeah. been here for too long. I know, I do go back to Manhattan. I have a brother who lives at Creedmoor Psychiatric and I drive into Queens. I know how congested it is, of course. Yeah. And I hang out in Queens a little bit, see a couple of friends. I'll go into Manhattan to see a couple of friends. I can't believe how my friends live in Manhattan. Joan grew up, Joan's my wife. She grew up on a 80 acre farm. Could be a 90 acre farm. That's a little swamp area. Bird sanctuary. Anyway, <laughs> uh, her father loved farming. And so her backyard was basically 90 acres. That's crazy. Yeah, and when, they, when the kids wanted to play football, her father plowed a field and they made a football field. And that's not a metaphor. They that just, actually happened. That actually yeah. happened. He had 11 <laughs> tractors and... You know, if you let them alone in the morning, by 11 o'clock, you had a football field. Okay? So, anyway. Her father, Joan graduates from Penn State, moves to Brooklyn. Her father visits her and says to her afterwards on the phone, how do you like your room? Because she lived in her room. Yeah, just one room. <laughs> like, do you miss your 90 acres? Just <laughs> she does. You know, she grew up and she started coming back to Jim Thorpe to go bicycling. So she came back to an area that wasn't too far from where the farm was. And every once in a while, she just wants to go back to that farm. Yeah, I don't blame her. I yeah. can't even imagine. I mean, I grew up in a tiny little condo sharing a room with my sister since the day I came home from the hospital. So... Uh -huh. It's just funny. I can't even imagine having that much room or. Oh, I just can't imagine your father making you a football. I think it was actually a baseball field, but. Still, any what, field. What's the difference? Right. What's the difference? Yeah. There is no difference. What did you hear about me? Or us, should I say? Well, <laughs> I guess post COVID, it's really hard to employ people. Something happened during COVID. People don't want to go back to work. I can't believe that they got that much money from yep, the government. <laughs> from unemployment that made it possible to never go back to work. But, okay, the Staben Museum has a restaurant. It has a gallery. It has a music venue. But we don't have a lot of staff. And it's hard to find staff that can pivot mentally and take care of situations as they come up. And another thing that happens is People are finding us because we're a destination. So if you want to walk across the room to take care of a task, somebody just walked in the door and all of a sudden you've given a tour that took 20 minutes and you have to say, where was I going? <laughs> right? And so we're really understaffed and it's problematic and we're very cool, but we look like we don't have it together because we need more people. And then something miraculous happened. Can I tell you a poem? I would love to hear a poem. Okay, so imagine you're in a room and all of a sudden it has a low ceiling. 
and you look up and you realize that the ceiling is sagging and it's going to fall. So you lift your arms up and you hold up the ceiling and you realize, okay, so I'm stopping the ceiling from collapsing. In not too much time, you realize, I can't do this forever. The ceiling is getting heavy. And then you start to worry, but then something miraculous happens. The miraculous is somebody walks in the room and says, I can help you. And they hold up the ceiling and you put your hands down. And together, you could hold up that ceiling for a very long time. Well, the lesbians are coming. <laughs> so what happened is Joan tells me that these two gals came into the building when the building was closed. So Joan tells me a story about these two gals that visited us from Port Jefferson, Long Island, two lesbians. And I said, yeah. She goes, the lesbians are going to save us. And I said, yeah, what are you talking about? And she tells me the story about how the lesbians came to Jim Thorpe from Port Jefferson, Long Island, which is 150 miles away one weekend. We were closed. It was probably when COVID was ending and we were still closed. And they came back the next week thinking we might be open and we were still closed. But the lesbians are resourceful. So they went into town because it's a small town. They found somebody who knew Joan and they said, Joan opens up the door for the lesbians and gives them a tour that takes about an hour and a half. And then she says to me, these two gals are really smart and they're incredibly enthusiastic. They want to come here and work with us. And I said, so you're telling me the lesbians are going to come here <laughs> and we're going to be okay because they're going to help hold up the ceiling. I think you're crazy. Within six weeks, mm. these two gals moved to Jim Thorpe and one of them is working with me or working with us. She came into the building to work with us either as somebody in the hospitality part, meaning the restaurant, or somebody doing social media, or somebody working with me. We were gonna give her five jobs. So she's here, and I had to say to her, excuse me, excuse me, all I know is that you're a lesbian. Do you have a name? And she said, my name is Danielle, and she left. That was my acid test. If she couldn't handle my sense of humor, I knew that I couldn't work with her. But she was not phased by it at all. At all. He has it's, yet to offend me. And I, I'm trying. I'm not really trying, but... He's I testing a, the wall. I have a little bit of, like, verbal Tourette's. And so she seems to think it's funny. I think you're hilarious. And here we are. And so the lesbians are here. I mean, Danielle is here. And so I... The other lesbian is Jess, and she's my wife. And... How we ended up in Jim Thorpe, she's been here a few times before. I think it was one or two times. And she saw this place and she always wanted to take me there. We were best friends for six years before we got together, you know, the whole rom-com story. And after the pandemic hit, I mean, I worked throughout the entire pandemic. So I had two weeks off. And then because I was in the restaurant industry, I was working the whole time, the height of takeout and whatever. So... Towards the end of the pandemic, I was... That's funny. What? The height of takeout. Yeah, it was the height of takeout. It was... Well, I, I never mean, heard it put like that. So. The, the restaurant I was working I'm at... I'm laughing. I know, but okay. the restaurant I was working at was open for two years before the pandemic. 
Then the pandemic hit and they did more business than they did in the two years combined in just takeout sales. So it's crazy. (laughs) But working throughout all of that and dealing with everything that came with running a business during the pandemic, I was in the worst mental place I was in my life, which I feel like that goes for most people. So Jess booked us a room at the Inn at Jim Thorpe and that was the first time we came here and all I wanted to do was see this museum that was closed and the second time we got here we met Joan and wait 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 what I forget well Jess wanted you to see the museum yeah but she didn't tell you what it was no Jess and wanted you me... didn't look it up I did not look it up because I set expectations on things and nine times out of ten I always end up disappointed so I didn't want to be disappointed about this because I was like, I wonder, she talked about this place like it was the most amazing place she's ever been. And I was like, we're going to this little town in Pennsylvania. And I just wanted to have zero. How good is this museum I, for the day? Right? I mean, 20, 20 out of 10, folks, truly. And I've, I love music. I've been to the Vatican. You know, I've been to the Sistine Chapel. I've seen art. I grew up Name dropper. I, well, it's true. I went to Rome three times. Every time I went to Rome, the Sistine Chapel was closed. Wait, are you serious? I'm serious. You've never seen the Sistine Chapel? No, every time I went to Rome, I didn't think, oh, I'm going to Italy. I wonder if the Sistine Chapel will be open. I, I just assumed. <laughs> and I just I kept on assuming that they can't yeah. keep it closed all the time. And it was I went closed. there over sporadic amount of, you know, like two years later, four years later, <laughs> five years later. Closed again. When I, repairs, well, cleaning. Of course. And when I, so you can't take pictures in the Sistine Chapel. They're very... Uh, they're sticklers about this. So this guy, I think he was from Germany, if I remember correctly, he decided to pull out a camera because there's not visible security. The Sistine Chapel security is undercover. So you don't know. That it, so this guy took out his camera. He was slammed to the ground and put in handcuffs before he could even put the camera up to I love his that. eye. It's true. It was the wildest thing ever because, I mean, everybody wants to take photos, but... Anyway, that's besides the point. I love that. Point. You just have to not think of how you're going to look at something in the future through a picture. You have to adore it in yeah. time. It definitely changed the experience because everything else we were allowed to take pictures of. But the point of bringing up the Sistine Chapel is I was so moved by looking at what was there. and Because when you're not taking photos, you're not living the experience through a lens you really absorb what you're taking in. And I would say up until recently, that was the most inspired I've been. And then when we came here and we got the private tour from Joan and she went through your story and what you went through, because Victor was not here when we toured the I'm getting museum. chills right now. That's true. So it's, it's me and Mike, right? <laughs> neck and neck, go on. <laughs> yeah, you and Michelangelo. And it was just the story, how you created what this building was. And then when I saw your studio, which I still am like, how do I come here every day? Because I remember walking in here and I was like, I was mesmerized by what this place was. And now being here every day, I'm like, damn, I wish I could feel that feeling, the first feeling again, seeing this space. Okay, so the studio is 2,500 square feet. When I lived in Manhattan, I had a 420 square foot apartment where I lived and worked, and it got so cramped. But the point is, I have a 2,500-square-foot room now that I work in every time I walk in the door. And I'll walk in that door 10 times a day. I'll walk in and out. I go, I can't 
who leave this room. So, I appreciate it, too. Yeah, it's one yeah. of those things where I was like, holy crap. Holy. <laughs> well, I'd say bad words. I, I didn't say a bad... I have not cursed this whole time, and that's Neither have I. Because I, I have curse to tell a lot. you, my it brain hurts. is stuttering. I know. I'm like, <laughs> I have to avoid the curse words. But, and on this tour, I was just telling... I was telling Joan, I was working in service, and I do love... I do love service, but that aspect comes from me loving people and talking to people and communicating with people. So as a, I thought it was a joke. She said, oh, well, if you moved here, I would hire you in a heartbeat. So I was like, oh, haha. Like I laughed it off. And for the next two weeks, I couldn't stop thinking about what she said. And I looked at Jess, we're newly married. And I look at her, I'm like, do you want to just move to the middle of nowhere, Pennsylvania with me? And she said, yes. But she lived in Long Island her whole life? Yeah, we grew up in the same town. She's 13, so I'm 26. She's 13 years older than me, so... I got you beat. I'm, <laughs> I'm 68. Yeah, you are. Man, I had to stutter on that one. <laughs> what? Anyway, go ahead. And uh, we grew up in the same town, so I think, it's, I think it's pretty funny. So she never left Long Island. The only time I ever left was New York City. And she said yes. Yeah. So I reached out to Joan, and I was like, were you serious? She said, absolutely. <laughs> and mind you, up until this point, I never met you. I never met Victor. So he was a mystery to me. I was just, I was like, okay, this is my way out of Long Island. And I was like, this is perfect. And I said to myself, if things work out, then I'm meant to go there, you know, finding an apartment and all of that. So we were denied for two apartments here. And at the phone call we got about the denial for the second apartment, I was like, okay, all hope is lost. I was like, this is just not meant to be. And then Joan reached out to me that night with, some guy's phone number and she was like just give this guy a call apparently he has an apartment for rent she didn't know any of the details nothing called this guy he was amazing he said he had a brand new renovated apartment come see it so we went to see it and within three weeks of seeing the apartment we were moved in and everything lined up so perfectly wow it's crazy yeah and then i came here and i had no idea what to expect from you. No, no clue. All I knew is what Joan told me. And then after I met you and we kind of connected in that way, I was like, okay, I think I was come here. I think I was meant to come here to work with you. And here we are. Well, it's almost a perfect story. But the most interesting part is that Jess and I had a trip planned to Jim Thorpe in October I met Joan in March of this past year. So, the October before that. So. Oh, uh, you were supposed to be here about a half a year before you yes. met Joan. My birthday is October 5th. So, Jess planned a trip to this town oh, okay. for my birthday. But there ended up being, we ended up getting a really good deal on the Montauk Manor in Montauk, New York. Oh, and, so you went there. And we decided to cancel the trip here and then we would come another time. Mm -hmm. But. This all ties back to the question that we get asked in the beginning of this podcast. How different would your life be? If we would have come in October, chances are you guys would have been open. We would have just came into the museum, maybe had a meal, never would have had the same experience, and we probably wouldn't be here right now. So I think it's really interesting to think about if we just changed one thing, how vastly different the course of the time after would have been. Because that's Well, it's kind of like when you have a car accident, if you were... Somewhere else, yep. just two seconds. Two seconds before, yeah. yeah. So. I've been in that situation as well. Yeah. So, 
Okay. Welcome to our accident. Welcome to, this is a huge, this is a train wreck that you're not going to be able to look away from. <laughs> we hope so. We, well, we will be. There's All right, no so. hoping here. So what we just learned for the past X amount of minutes is that you are not just an artist, you are an animator, you are an author, but we didn't talk about that. We will talk about his book. So Victor's an animator, he's an author, he's an artist. What do you call a creator of this building? <laughs> Yeah, I don't know what to call the creator of the building, but the building did give me the space to do other things. And I don't know if I would be animating. No, I definitely wouldn't be animating if I uh, didn't have the building. Because yeah. what happened was, I was working on the Turtle series. My kids are now like a year old. I'm reading them. I'm, I'm reading my first daughter and my second daughter is like a year and a half younger. I'm reading them ABC books, like tag team ABC book reading for a couple of years. And we had, I don't know, 50 different ABC books that you could read over and over again. And they're mind-numbingly mind like, uh, simple. Like A is for apple, B is for apple, C is for apple. It's <laughs> enough to make you nuts. Right. Just and so I'm a real fan of the dictionary, and I just at one point said to myself, I can make an ABC book. But I quickly realized that the dictionary was seeding me with so many ideas, as long as I was looking up words I didn't know, I found it even more fascinating that I was onto something. I made a counterintuitive ABC book. Why does making a counterintuitive ABC book turn into an animation? What happened was, you could do the show alone. I framed out, I couldn't do the show alone. <laughs> I don't like myself <laughs> enough. I framed out a room in the building with 26 empty frames. And the frames, I have to, well, the building actually has its own frame shop. So I framed out 26 frames, put them up on the wall. They were all empty. The empty wall, the empty frames spoke to me. They said, fill me. They actually, I could hear them say, fill me. And I filled up the room piece by piece. The book took me about three and a half years to make. Right. How did the book become an animation? That's Okay, how did the book become an animation? Doodle will have its own. Great things started to happen because I put the book, I, I, had, I had to fill the frames, okay? Empty frames were talking to me. I filled the frames. As I was filling the frames, people were coming by and watching the book progress. And the question that I got over and over again was, what are the stories for these characters? And I really am not a writer, but at the same time, I'm not a writer. I'm reading a lot of stuff to my kids and I'm making up stories for the, my kids. I would just make up story after story that would send them drifting and every once in a while, and they were all based on Batman. It was really funny. Batman? Like, I've ba never they seen knew, Batman. They, that's like a real I, conversation stopper. Folks, we'll pick this up on episode two. So anyway, <laughs> Batman was always the hero of my stories. And I would just say, I'm not, I'm not an author. I don't have any stories for these characters. But enough people throw peanuts at you, you're an elephant, okay? So I took my laptop, I went three miles up the road uh, for a couple of weeks, and I started pecking out stories that were... Kind of that my inspiration was Aesop's fables because Aesop could tell uh, really funny stories. You like Aesop? I love 
those fables. Okay, but what's great about them is they're page long. They are, and right? they're easy to read. And they're tight. There's, there's mm -hmm. not one word in Aesop's fables that's not supposed to be there. So I said to myself, if I could make a story that's a page and a half long, that's a start. And I, I made five stories. These stories are, are going to be best served as animations. And I started to go down the road of how do you make an animation? The ABC book turned into a little bit of authorship, which turned into script writing for animations. So I now have two animations, E equals MC cubed and the Benito is finito. And E equals MC cubed got into 14 film festivals this year, which is kind of strange because this year kind of started last year during COVID. And I don't know what to think of getting into festivals during COVID because you couldn't go to them and they yeah. were virtual. And the whole thing about festivals is you meet people, you rub shoulders, you have conversations. You're not glued to a screen looking at 14 yeah. stamp size heads. But you you're just, not making any connections <laughs> that way. You just got into Brackenridge Film Festival, so that's exciting, and you will be attending. Yeah, yeah. We just got into a festival in Colorado. And the reason why I got into these festivals, the reason why I applied to the festivals was because every time you get accepted, you get a laurel. You get to put it on the, on the animation poster. And so you have 14 laurels on the poster. People have opened the door to your product and it makes you look like okay there's something going on here yeah. now you can start shopping it around this is my <laughs> thought and i also won four best animation and i'm not just just not just not a painter just not a writer just not an animator i'm a little bit of a curriculum creator i don't know what that is i don't know if i'm a teacher because i don't teach regularly but i'm really excited about getting this concept in the hands of kids from maybe the third grade to the 12th grade because nobody has a vocabulary anymore. I think people are basically communicating with 200 words. And if you have a kid open the dictionary and start reading it, they just blossom intellectually or conceptually. The, the dictionary gives them so many ideas and I've had child after child come up to me and say, I didn't know I could do this. People who can draw very often don't realize, like they, they don't necessarily come up with ideas to, to illustrate or propel the drawing forward. And this dictionary concept is a stunner for thinking conceptually. And once you get a kid to think conceptually, it builds their self-esteem. Yeah. And that's something that is exciting. It's exciting to be a part of. It definitely is. Yeah, and I just gave a class in Bethlehem and the teacher took a survey afterwards and she goes, well, what, I said, what's on the survey? And she said, well, we asked them what they liked about the class and only three kids said, I really like the teacher, right? <laughs> and I, you know, just having three people like me was enough. We're going to milk that Daedal Doodle cow. Yes, we are. Okay. Yes, we are. Boo. We have big plans for Daedal Doodle. But I think at this point, people who are listening are probably like, why is this? Wake up, people. <laughs> why is this called the million dollar painting? And everything that Victor just mentioned about 
what he's done, what he has accomplished, the creation of what I like to call his legacy, because that's what it is, gives us all a front row seat to the creation of the million dollar painting. And it's all encompassing. What is the million dollar painting? Well, guys, if you made it this far, we just want to thank you guys for listening. Be sure to follow us at The Million Dollar Painting and be sure to come back next week for the next episode of our podcast. Get ready to laugh with us, have fun with us. And if you want to see any more of Victor's work, be sure to check it out on www.victorstaven.com. There you can find his artwork, his animations, information about the museum. And if you have any questions, feel free to DM us or contact us. Thanks so much, guys.